Time of great suffering as the pandemic raged and the fires burned the forest. A great ego arose with an army of hungry ghosts. Attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. <laughs> and the people were caught in a web of technology. The ego and the ghosts spread contagious lies until no one knew what was true anymore. I'm confused. But there were those who longed for the truth still, who remained true to the light that they knew was inside of everyone, me and you, you and me, me and you, everyone. And they followed the light to find its source. And they found it in the hearts of men, found it in the hearts of women, in the hearts of all beings everywhere. What was his life? It was in the heart of the forest. It was in the heart of the ocean. It was in the sun and the heavens, in the fermions and the bosons. And together, the warriors whose weapons were wisdom revealed their inner light. And the heavens opened, and there she was, her skin glowing with the moonlight. Fragrance was mycelium and flowers. And she shook off the ages and she smiled. And the religions where men ruled alone, they turned back into dust. And she said, I am the universe that is vast and unknown. She can't be known. I'm the light inside your heart. I am the wolf's howling oh. and the hunger of the lion with her newborn pride. And the great ego looked upon her with desire. And his hungry ghost, they spewed out lies. But she was undeniable. And the warriors all shone with her light. The stars are in her hair and her third eye is a dense matter at the center of our galaxy and we spiral out, keep moving, spiral out, keep moving, spiral out as we circle around. Oh, mama, tell me where's this river go? Cause I'm a traveler on it and nobody, nobody don't, don't seem to know. Kumbhaka. Part 2. The Present. Welcome to episode two of the Warrior One podcast with our featured guest, Sanskrit and yoga philosophy teacher, Manorma. 
In each episode, we circle around answering one question, which is, how do we best live this one brief magical life? Now, the nature of wisdom is that a truly profound question can't be answered definitively. Is there a God, for example, only breaks into many subsequent questions. How do you define God? What is consciousness? Where does scientific knowledge end and the vast unknown begin? Are we avatars in a computer simulation being manipulated by an adolescent alien who has mommy issues? How does our subjective experience relate to the objective truth? And so on. So the question is not explicitly asked, but rather implicit throughout the podcast. It is a Rosetta Stone you should put in your pocket as we embark on this journey through music, sound, thought experiment, stories of gods and goddesses, a basic introduction to the Sanskrit language, and clips from my two interviews with Manorma. The first three episodes of Warrior One form a trilogy that revolves around an event that occurred the weekend of March 14th, 2020, as the United States was waking up to the inevitability of a pandemic spreading throughout the country. Episode 1's guest, Amy Apolity, has a yoga school called 90 Monkeys. The event was a module in the 90 Monkeys Advanced Teacher Training Program. Now, in response to all the listener questions from Episode 1, 90 Monkeys does not have any relation to the 1995 movie 12 Monkeys, in which a deadly virus wipes out almost all of humanity, Bruce Willis goes back in time to save us, possibly from Brad Pitt. I won't give away the ending, but this podcast does feature a virus and time travel, but it's a completely different group of monkeys and a different handsome protagonist. No need to worry. The training was held in Boulder, Colorado at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. Manorama was the guest teacher there to teach us Sanskrit in the context of an ancient Hindu text called the Upanishads. I've named these first three episodes the Kumbhaka Trilogy. Kumbhaka is the Sanskrit word that describes a retention of breath between an inhale and an exhale, or vice versa. Meditating on the unique experience I shared with Amy, Manorma, and the other participants, I realized Kumbhaka was a perfect metaphor for the pause that occurred between the pre-pandemic world and the world we are experiencing now. We were holding our breath, waiting to see what would happen next. You and I had an interesting experience the teacher training module with Amy Apolity of... In the middle of COVID dropping at that exact yeah. moment, like you and that I... That was the States weekend least, when right? airports started shutting down and yep. people started really taking things seriously in the U.S., March 14th. But as it turned out, it was really wonderful. And had, that was my first kind of real delve into a Zoom learning experience and they had rented Mm -hmm. a giant screen and projector and everything so you were you were larger Uh than life (laughs) and you were able to (laughs) 
normal. And you were able to watch our mouths and and know if we were pronouncing the five mouth positions of Sanskrit right, and that was pretty impressive too. Yes, I've been doing it a while, so the I was comfortable uh, navigating that, and I also thought about that as I was making my decision about whether to fly or not. Uh, you know, given the what happened in the world situation, I'm I'm actually happy I didn't fly at that time for so many reasons. You know, my own safety, the safety of the people on the flight, the safety of the students, and all that. However. Um, uh, we did manage to make it something really wonderful. Uh, the workshop was a very, I think no one will forget that workshop. Not It's kind of like, where were you at the time of 9-11 or where were you at Pearl Harbor or where were, you know, it's one of those definitive moments. Where were you when this was happening? And I think it was fortuitous, not just for the students, although particularly for the students, but also for myself and Amy, if I can speak for her, uh, she can also add to that. But that we were all together in this time and there was something really special and beautiful about us holding space in the light of yoga while this was also going on. So I thought that was unique as I've reflected on it as, you know, the weeks and if not months have passed at this point. Right. It was being with a spiritual community at that time of the big transition was the big bang. Uh, <laughs> the big bang. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> that was, that was, that was very helpful. Yeah. And also it was helpful to frame the, the future way of relating with it, you know, um, in so many different ways, you know, it, it helped to put a frame around how to look at that. And, and it was funny because there was so much mayhem going on outside of class is my sense if anybody was experiencing what I was witnessing, you know, the news and the friends calling and the, and the, uh, you know, the sort of government, the local governments going, what in the world's going on. And yet there was something so special about within the space of our class, we were able to have a real sense of quiet, calm and uh, nurture growth and nurture a deeper sense of stability. So you know, I think that that was also something to observe. It wasn't just that it calmed people down, although it may have done that, but it also was like, you can still grow, you can still learn, you can still, not everything has been taken from you. Now, 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 present is the only real time. There is no past and there isn't a future and there never will be. What is the present besides a gift? In yoga and meditation practices, the off-stated goal is to be present, to be in the present. But is that truly possible? According to physicists, we are woven into the fabric of space-time. There's a measurable amount of time between when we come into contact with a sensation and when that sensation registers in our brains. From there, we might translate the sensation into a thought. And by then, the moment is gone. Even the speed of light has a limit. It takes one billionth of a second for the light from your cell phone in your hand to reach the receptors in your eye. 
The light from the sun is eight minutes from your eyes, and the stars we see at night shed the photons that fall into our eyes billions of years ago. And what about the curious case of the photon? According to the theory of relativity, a particle of light won't experience time no matter how far it travels in space. It experiences itself as created by the star and absorbed into your eye at the same moment. Metaphysically, we may be metaphorically made of light, but in the world of flesh and blood, we don't move so fast. Our perceived present is all signals from the past. One skill developed in yoga and meditation, then, is to quiet our thoughts enough to remove that extra nanosecond we spend translating the sensations we feel into the language of our thoughts. The experience of sensation before it becomes thought has a profound effect. We are getting a little bit closer to the light. To make things even more interesting, special relativity teaches us that observers in different frames of reference can have different measurements of whether a given pair of events happened at the same time or at different times with there being no physical basis for preferring one observer's judgment over another's. One aspect of time is our perception of it. Now imagine you're in ancient Greece and there's a thunderstorm. From atop Mount Olympus, Zeus hurls two lightning bolts simultaneously. One strikes the ground about a mile away from you, The other strikes five miles away. With your own visual perception, you would see the flashes of light happening simultaneously. But sound travels more slowly. And so the first clap of thunder would reach your ears in about five seconds, while the second thunderclap would hit your eardrum in 25 seconds. Wait for it. Wait for it. I got places to go. Wait for it. Wait for it. I got things to do. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. Holy Holy shit! Shut your mouth! Physicists often liken time to still frames in a reel of film. On the movie screen, with light passing through the film as it moves through a projector, you'll see a continuity. But in actuality, the continuity is an illusion created because we don't have the ability to see each individual still frame as they pass by on the screen. Our consciousness blurs it all together. Another aspect of time is the slices of now. Now. According to physicist Brian Greene, an alien in a non-moving universe billions of light years from Earth would experience the same now as we do. But once motion is added, everything changes. If she moves away from us, her now lines up with our past. If she moves towards us, her now slices angled towards our future. And so, the story goes, all moments of time exist, the past, present, and future, regardless of what Alan Watts said earlier. There is no past, and there isn't a future. And there never will be. These laws of physics, of course, bring us back to the mythological descriptions of the goddess. We can describe her with Einstein's familiar equation, E equals mc squared. Stick with me here. Like light, she is said to be the ultimate reality that is beyond time. 
To become anything else, she gains mass. Mass that is entangled with the fabric of space and time. Mass that is in motion, constantly trading one form for another. She is the rocks and the soil beneath our feet. She is the flowing waters. She is the open sky. She is the transformative nature of fire that turns matter back into light. And because matter is entangled with space and time, everything in the material world is impermanent. We experience only the tiniest fragment of the infinite, filtered through our finite minds, imperfect and ever-changing. And so there is a truth to the belief that this world is an illusion. The illusion has aspects that can be measured and truths that we can describe with math, but what you experience and what I experience will never be exactly the same. With our technologies, we can record moments of now and bring them with us into the future. And while these relics exist, they can be experienced in our now. My voice, which you are experiencing now, is coming from my own past. It's a gift for you in your present. Oh, thank you. And with those thoughts traveling through the circuitry of your brain, let us now go together into the past to a time before we knew the pandemic was close at hand, September 19th of 2019. I was wandering the United States, imagining a podcast which explored the meaning of life through interviews with people who were doing what they loved, finding abundance in it, and content with their own lives and livelihoods. I wanted to help myself and others who are seeking such things to find that same contentment. One such person is my friend and teacher, Manorma. I was back in New York City to tie up some loose ends. She graciously agreed to meet me in Central Park. And it was a beautiful summer day. The sun was shining. Maskless people congregating without thoughts of contagion. And I was just cherishing the time spent with a wise woman. what is a guru and what role do they play in, can they play in the modern Western civilization? Wow. Huge question. Well, first let me say it's a pleasure to be here with you in New York City, in Central Park, with all the ambient sounds all around us and the people walking by and the big tennis courts and the sirens. It just feels so natural to be sitting here with you and uh, uh, talking in this way. Um, For this rather large question. I don't see this question asked so often of other people. Perhaps perhaps it is, but I do get asked this question a lot. And I think one of the reasons is because I hail from a very uh, traditional lineage where Guru was uh, very much a part of that tradition, is a part of it. And um, it came in such a benevolent way for me. So I always tell people I'm not going to be a breaker with tradition uh, because for me it all it all evolved naturally and easily and in a very positive way. And that doesn't in any way uh, take away from the people who've struggled with, uh, you know, difficulty in power dynamics with teachers and so on and so forth. But for me, when people ask me about the concept of guru, I always tell them that, do you want a guru? How do you get a guru? If you get one, how do you get rid of one? These seem to be the questions in the modern world. And, um, I think people ask me because for me, it came in such a positive way. And so it's kind of curious. 
And I feel well-placed to answer it. And my answer is this, that real gold is phenomenal. And when you come near it, it shines and it's luminous. And fool's gold exists because there's real gold. So yes, there's always going to be snake oil salesmen and charlatans and, and people working through their own confusion, said in a more sweet way. There are also beings who have perfected consciousness and to be in their presence and to watch them engage life and watch them engage at whatever time in history you end up in their presence is really unique. They are not just of the body and mind, though they none of us are, but they know it, they live it. And to be in their, their field of consciousness is to be transformed, not just to be taken over by a megalomania, nothing like that, but to be really, to feel supported, to feel transformed, to feel better each time you're in their presence. These are some of the signs to look out for. Now, in the modern world, this becomes a question, right? So I'm very much a believer, Pashupa, of the modern world. Um, how do we merge the modern world with the ancient traditional or the depth of teachings? At this stage in my life, I've thought about it a lot. And I always thought, you know, well, we don't have to always go to ashrams, but that doesn't mean we never go to ashrams. And we don't have to live in caves, but it doesn't mean we never go to caves. I do believe that there is a certain amount of time people have to put in to their practice in order to uh, really make make some tracks with practice, make some depth and development in themselves. That said, um, you know, you can still have your regular life and the things that you love in regular life and a depth of practice, but you have to know how to navigate those two. So the concept of the guru is the concept of being taken under the wing of, of a proper teacher who understands their job and has the ability to guide you and then also ignite that inner guidance in yourself so that they pass you the baton at some point. Not they pass you the baton and you take the helm of something like that, but rather they pass you the baton of helping to guide yourself. Right. I think in in the Western world, it's easy for us to think of uh, apprenticeship and words like that, but the word guru seems a little more scary. Yeah, I think it's scary or it's, or it's kind of associated with megalomaniacs in that sense, or it's just kind of made fun of, like, you know, the math guru, the the love guru, the, the people make fun of it. And I think that it's it's not really a concept we understand well, but I always tell people not everybody has a great sister, but we don't throw out the concept of sister. And not everybody had a great mom, but we don't throw out the concept of mother. And guru means teacher, and literally it is the remover of darkness, which signifies light. And... uh so you have to also look to what comes in your life. Each life has its own frames. For some people, nature is like a guru. For others, it's more of a there's more of a mentor that will step into their life. For someone else, it's a a sweetheart who really helps them to start to believe in themselves and grow. Not everybody needs a formal sort of uh, yogically trained guru, but in that context, that also exists and is a very meaningful. Beautiful. Could you tell us about the moment that you met this teacher and, and how that transpired? Um, well, I will say, you know, 
there's a thing in the Indian culture that's amazing. I mean, I certainly wasn't, I was like a typical American kid. I, in some ways I feel very American still, despite my sort of, I had like this, this half upbringing of like half baseball and mac and cheese and, and like, um, very ordinary American life is kind of couching it like that. And then these, this other half of my life was being, being steeped in the depth of Indian tradition and culture. And, um, along with that in the Indian culture, you refer to people with very sweet names. You give them names. Uh, we kind of do it here in the West with kind of pet names, you know, we'll say, Hey, PG or Hey, Hey, sweetheart, or Hey, uh, let's say the woman's name is Barbara. You'll say, Hey, Bar, or her name is Jennifer. You'll say, yo, Jen, what's up? You know, you'll give like a, a pet name or a sweetness. So, in the Indian culture, we, we have terms of respect. So we say things like Maharaj or um, Ma, or we say things like Guru. So, and each teacher will uh, embody a certain energy. Someone is called a Baba, someone's called an Amma or a Ma. Anyhow, he was he he had the name or the moniker in this kind of term of respect, Guru, and G is honorific or beloved. I met him um, by chance, but you know these kinds of things are not by chance. But at the time, it had that flavor. My mother was a um, she was kind of a beatnik. My mom, a bit of a bohemian, you know she she was a snappy dresser, very stylish, very interested in art. And she worked for the government. It was this, it was already kind of a mixed thing. She worked helping uh, kids who were in abusive homes be placed in better ones. And um, she cared a lot about kids. She was taking yoga classes in the town and she ended up being invited to hear this master speak across the river. We were living in a town in Westchester. And eventually we moved across the river due to some financial difficulties my mom found herself in for a period of time uh, because she had uh, kind of used a lot of the money that she had from a sale of a house for some other purpose for my education and so on. So we were staying at my grandparents and she said, listen, do you want to go see this man speak? He's a doctor. He's he's a speaker. I said, well, what's it going to be about? She's like, I don't know, something to do with yoga. You might be interested. And yoga wasn't popular at the time at all. Nobody really knew what it was, but there was a little magazine, a little newspaper on the table that um, she had been reading that was associated with this place. And I went, I just went on a kind of, a, sure, whatever. I went and I saw the man speak and the man was Sri Brahmananda Sarasvati. He was a brain surgeon, an ophthalmologist, a psychiatrist, PhD in Sanskrit. And to be in his presence was like, he was so interested in, in life. He was so alive. I'd never seen anybody so alive until I met him. That really intrigued me. And he was, he was very old at the time, but he had panache, he had style. And he, the things he said were deeply interesting to me. So I, I stayed and I kept going back after my high school classes. I would try to get a ride by my grandpa and go listen to him. Yeah, one of the quotes I saw on your website from you that you said of Guruji is that each time we engaged in the language together, the language Sanskrit, I imagine, the universe would expand a little more. What kind of expansion are you talking about there? Definitely the Sanskrit language. 
you know, in some ways he used to, he was just voracious for knowledge and he taught me that the whole principle here is about expansion. That's the principle of Briha. Briha is the root for Brahman. It means expansion and Brahman means the highest expansion. But our purpose here is for growth. When the growing is finished, your time is finished here uh, in embodiment. He used to have me read the dictionary to him in Hindi. He'd have me read the English dictionary. And of course, Sanskrit he had a great love for this language. And the thing is, when you study Sanskrit, the most amazing thing starts to happen. You start to learn about yogic principles because like any of the yogic practices, Sanskrit has embedded within it the, um, it has coded into the grammar, the principles of the yogic life. So that's the kind of expansion. Suddenly I was starting to understand more about the way of the yogi. I was starting to understand more about the way of the yogini. I was learning. My instincts were starting to become more honed, more sharpened. I was able to put together different insights. Um, of course, my knowledge was growing, so that was expanding. And my sense of love was certainly growing, but also a sense of universal love. So that's the kind of expansion. It's the best kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the best kind. Kindness is the best. Well, do you ever wonder what this world is all about? Do, do you ever wonder what this world is all about? Don't you? Because I wonder, wonder, wonder what this world is all about. conversation I had with Menorma in Central Park now seems many lifetimes ago. I was a different I, she was a different she. 
and the place was somewhere else in space and time. The now you are hearing my voice from, I am sitting in my apartment in Boulder, Colorado. There's snow outside my window, and there's a storm coming. The United States presidential election is upon us. Anxiety hangs over the entire country like a dark cloud. We all dream of sunshine breaking through again. In the USA, there's a sizable segment of the population who are literalists in their understanding of the Christian Bible. They have a huge effect on our politics. Our current president has been handing our judicial system over to them in exchange for their support. For them, four more years under his administration will be their salvation. For many others, myself included, it is a terrifying thought. We stand to lose environmental protection, civil rights, and possibly the future of human life on earth. We are a nation deeply divided. I often wonder if religions that prophesize an apocalypse somehow look for ways to bring it about. If every word in a religious text is unimpeachable, and those scriptures describe the ways which the world will crumble, will the believers take actions to ensure that it happens that way? These thoughts have haunted my mind since I've been politically aware, but never more so than now. I see the four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping across our country. The first on a white horse is pandemic. The second, riding a red horse, brings civil war. The third, famine, rides a black horse. And the fourth comes riding a pale horse. And he is death for a quarter of the earth. In Colorado, the forests around me have been burning. Our hospital beds are filling up with victims of the pandemic. To the south, hundreds of children have been separated from their parents. The internet that was supposed to bring us together has become a tool used to tear us apart. If we let our curiosity wither by living an unexamined life, believing in authority figures over our own intuitions, then we become rigid and breakable. Our resilience is lost. The hard part for any of us, regardless of religious belief, is to find the compassion for those who see the world differently than we do, to find the compromises that will unite us. In a 2019 New York Times article, not long before his passing, the great American spiritual teacher Ram Das was asked about the president. He answered with these wise words, On my altar is Donald Trump. When I look at his picture, I say to him, I know you from your karma, and I don't know you for your soul. And I am compassionate about that soul because he has heavy karma. In the first season of this podcast, I'm exploring the teachings of yoga as a path towards contentment. To be clear, there's problems inherent in every organized religion, in every culture, and in every work created by the hands of man. One teaching that I do find helpful, that's found in many religions, is the idea of seeing God in everyone. Our personalities are formed around the many complex situations of our lives, but beneath those layers there's a common thread. Ram Das was once Richard Alpert, working alongside Timothy Leary at Harvard, researching the mind-expanding properties of LSD. Dr. Leary's path led him to become an advocate of psychedelics, running afoul of the U.S. government and spending time in prison for his activities. 
His divine spark was to play the part of the trickster. Dr. Alpert, on the other hand, traveled to India and eventually found a spiritual teacher called Neem Karoli Baba. Baba, Baba. According to Richard, I gave my guru in India LSD, and he said that plants with similar effects were around in the olden times, and that by taking them you could stay in the room with Christ for only a few hours, instead of living with the Lord. That's why I went to the East. They had methods for living with the Lord. Richard returned from India as Ram Das, published a best-selling book called Be Here Now, and spent the rest of his life teaching and lecturing about spiritual matters. He attributed enlightened qualities to his teacher, who he called Maharaji. The same teacher also became an inspiration to George Harrison and Krishna Das, among other Western seekers. I find that relationship to a spiritual teacher fascinating, although I've never experienced it to such a degree. We're all familiar with stories where such a relationship can go wrong. What is it with humans that some of us seek out these relationships? How do we discern healthy and helpful ones from the abusive and destructive ones? How do we sift the fool's gold from the true gold? Let's now return to the interview with Manorma and see what she has to say. Just spending time with him was just otherworldly. Um, the older I get, the more meaningful. The more time I go from the time of his passing, the more meaningful everything he said has become. The more deeply I go into my own practice, the more meaningful the things are that he said. And what I mean by that is every time we engage Sanskrit, I understood another another piece, another layer. I felt something deeper. I listened more Clearly, I let's say I was going through a, a, a mantra with him. So the first round, I'm just trying to get the general gist of how to say it and get the feeling in my mouth. The next round, I'm refining elements. The, the third round, starting to understand, you know, and I'm talking about third round of him teaching it and then me listening. The third round, I'm starting to look at meaning. The fourth round, I'm letting go of all of those technical elements, but I couldn't be where I am unless I had gone through the technical alignments. And now I want to just have a pure experience. I want to let all of that come together and allow me to have an experience. And that's a, that each one of those steps is a kind of expansion. It sounds like that could be applied to many things in life that you first encounter them. And there's a, just trying to wrap your mind around the the basics of it. And then every time you go back and you get a little bit more, but having a, having a really amazing teacher must speed up that process and help you get deeper quicker. Yeah. I think it's not just having an amazing teacher. It's two things. It's the amazing teacher and the amazing student. And I'm not putting myself in the category of amazing student, but I'm saying what has to happen is, the two have to click in to the concept of oneness. It's like amazing relationships, you know, they have an amazing relationship. You both click in. It's not, it, you can never have an amazing relationship. Let's say a love relationship with one person who's like, I'm so in love. And the other person is like, uh, you know, not so much, you know, <laughs> or they're like, eh, it's okay. You know, the amazing is when the two work together towards something else 
And that becomes, you know, something so, so beautiful. You know, that can be with parents and children. That can be with friendships. That can be in any relationship, you know. And certainly uh, in our case, we hit it because I don't think it's just a great teacher that does it for us. I think it is a very skilled teacher who has a lot of kindness, who has a deep seeing that we meet with and we also feel an affinity for because you can meet great people, but you don't feel any affinity for it. So again, you have to listen to that intuition. And then um, you got to do your work. And your work is struggling and funny and hard. And you feel, ah, enough one day. And another day you feel like, you know what? I got all this energy. Let's do it. You know, it's a life has to breathe through that. But you keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eye on the point, which is the deeper self-knowledge. And you both work in that, that very real aim. You know, a student told me this morning in an individual lesson from Europe, and she said to me, you know, I love being with you, Ma. And I said, oh, well, I love being with you, too. And she said, we giggle, and then all of a sudden we get very deep, and then we giggle a little more, and then we go deep. And I, I said, yeah, that would be a good description of my style, <laughs> you know. So I enjoy being playful and and you know, kind of the play of life and enjoying it at the same time. It's neither is at the expense of the other, the sacred and the serious, and they're not necessarily sacred or serious all the time, but that kind of more that is present and also playfulness. That's just how I, my speed or. How do you feel the presence of your Guruji since he passed? Do you feel some part of his spirit is actually with you sometime or is it the memories and things that he taught you that you carry with you or how, how do you experience that that's a very profound I question. know well that's what I'm here for <laughs> um, yeah. we're um, giggling and then we're going deep and then we go deep you know that took some time to evolve for me post I was just telling someone the other day someone close to me how it took me a while after he passed out of his body to I didn't want to, when he passed away, I didn't want to kind of make a pat phrase like he is always with us, you know, and the meantime inside, I was really like this, you know, I was very shaken up by his passing because I loved him so much. And also because my physical life was so woven into his as anybody would be if their life was so woven into another person's their whole, it's not just a loss they experience, but their whole life changes. You know, that's been part of the depth of the times that we find ourselves in, right? Because not only are we like, let's say, not working or we are working or whatever is, you know, all that, but it's everybody's life has shifted to some extent in a major way, right? And so their daily life. And we we find a lot of grounding in, in sort of daily life. So my daily life was very woven into his life. I would take him to program. I would bring him back from program. I would translate for him. I would manage interviews with him, et cetera, et cetera. Cook food for him. Hmm. You know, there were so many things that I was involved in. I can't eat. That's just the, the tiniest bit that I'm expressing. Uh, help him do writings, help him do mail. So it was a very traditional relationship uh, in the Guru Shishya Parampara format. Um, and after he passed, I had to be with the loss 
Um, but I really had to be with that loss in order to gain a deeper wisdom. But it was painful and hard. And it was a process that I had to go through that was, like I just said, painful and hard. On the other hand, through going through that, I didn't have delayed grief, which I'm grateful for, uh, because delayed grief is very difficult at times. And you can certainly go through it if any of the, any of the viewers are, you know, if that ticks a little box for them, you will go through that. But I wanted to be conscious about that. And I wanted to walk through it as a yogini. So I did my very best to do that. And in the middle of it all, when a guru passes out of their form, the whole system will make some big changes. So it wasn't just my ordinary life, but it was, you know, so many elements at the yoga center that I had grown up at and so many other things. So all of that was at play. And I, I'm saying it because I think it's important to recognize that I was determined at the time, it was a conscious choice to go through the humanity of it, not to just blow by my humanity, but at the same time to invoke the depth of wisdom and find the way between or find that the space that where they would meet and where there and where they would meet for me would be this authentic um, understanding. It was a good instinct and it worked and it helped me enormously. And it was a slow process, but over time I did discover that. So I had to allow myself to feel the missing. Anybody would feel a missing if they, if they spend time with somebody every day and they physically are not there. So uh, I had to process that, but at the same time, I didn't deny that is what I'm trying to say. On the other hand, I didn't just like fall to the ground and it's all horrible and, you know, throw all the teachings out. Instead, I worked to lift through those teachings and see what, you know, I put the teachings to the test and those teachings actually served me uh, that my teacher had taught me and, and been so kind and generous Okay, so that happened. And then through that experience, uh, he came alive for me, not in like, you know, my mother used to tease when I was a kid that when she would pass out of her body, she would be like the Woody Allen mother in the sky, always <laughs> hanging out over Woody Allen's shoulder every time we went on a date or did anything. So my sister and I sometimes laugh about that. You know, it wasn't like that. My guru didn't play that kind of role, but he is... He is a profound wisdom that lives in my soul. And I realized through that experience that when you love somebody very deeply, they merge into your soul. Now, what that means, I don't know if I have the dexterity to verbalize that. That's also of a personal nature for me as well. So I'm not even sure I want to. But just to say, I'm not trying to leave a greeting card saying on the table, but maybe that's something people can reflect on and that that's enough to sit with. That was beautiful. Let us travel now into the realms of myth, where stories are told to encapsulate greater truths. The following tale is from the Devi Mahatmya, where the goddess Mahalakshmi battles with the buffalo demon Mahishasura. Now, demon, that's not quite right. In Hindu mythology, there are beings called Asuras, and they have both good and bad qualities, but they tend more towards the egoic pursuits. They're constantly battling with beings called devas, or gods, who tend towards benevolence. 
In this tale, Mahishasura is the leader of the Asuras, and his armies have waged a 100-year war against the gods. This takes place in a time where the ancient Vedic gods are being replaced in ritual and worship by the Trimurti of modern Hinduism. Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Often mythology evolves as the gods of old transfer their power to the gods of now. Keep this in mind. Earlier Vedic gods were representative of the forces of nature. There's Surya, the sun god, Agni, god of fire, Vayu, god of the wind, Chandra, god of the moon, Indra, god of the heavens, and Yama, the god of death. There's 30 such gods playing a part in this story. And having been defeated in battle, those gods now wander the earth as mere mortals. Led by Brahma, they go to Vishnu and Shiva for help. And the three of them knit their brows in fury. A magnificent light radiates out from them. And a similar light comes from each of the lesser gods. And all this light combines into one great unequaled light. The brilliant light from these male gods coalesces into female form and pervades the three worlds with its splendor. And in this form, Mahalakshmi is born. The light from Shiva forms her face, Vishnu's light forms her arms, and the light from Brahma creates her lotus feet. Her hips form from the earth god, the moon, her breasts, and from fire, her three eyes. These three eyes that signify the ability to see past, present, and future. The gods then bestow on her their own weapons. They don't actually give her their own weapons, but generate duplicates and copy-paste them into her many hands. Shiva's trident, Vishnu's discus, Agni's spear, Vayu's bow, Indra's thunderbolts, Yama's staff of death. Other gods give her gifts of benevolence. Brahma gives her prayer beads and a water pot. Surya gives her rays of sunlight. Kala, the lord of time, gives her a sword and shield. Himalaya, god of the mountains, gives her a lion to ride upon. And the ocean gives her garlands of unfading lotuses that adorn her head and breasts. Once she is adorned by these and other gifts, she lets out a terrible roar, which shakes the earth and heavens. Mahishasura gathers his armies of millions and sets out to engage with her on the battlefield. They rain down spears, axes, arrows, and all manner of weapons against her, but she just laughs and shakes them off as in play. Her lion roams among the demon armies, tearing them apart. The Devi strikes down her enemies with sword strokes and spears and arrows, making some of the Asura corpses look like porcupines. She crushes them with her mace, bludgeons them with her club, and decapitates them with her sword, until the earth is covered with their corpses and broken chariots, and blood flows like rivers. All the while, the gods shower flowers down upon her from the heavens. Jaima! Mahishasura sends many of his generals with their armies, and one by one they are defeated. 
While she is doing battle with them, he is in his buffalo form, destroying her armies. He flings mountains into the sky with his horns and creates tsunamis with his tail, lashing at the oceans. In this part of the story, the goddess is called Chandika, the violent and impetuous one. She is violent in action while her mind is serene. She is at play in the world that she is ultimately the creator of. And with their own armies defeated, Mahisha and Chandika finally do battle with each other. Mahisha is a shapeshifter and uses this ability to confound the goddess. She throws her noose over his buffalo head. He then turns into a lion. She severs his lion head with her sword, and then he becomes a man with a sword. She shreds him with her arrows, and then he takes form as an elephant and drags her lion with his trunk. She cuts off his trunk with her sword, and he returns to buffalo form. Chandika then drinks a divine psychedelic potion. Her eyes turn red, and she laughs uncontrollably. (laughs) She pounces on him, pinning his neck to the earth with her foot. She thrusts her spear through his body. He tries to shapeshift. Revealing his true form, she cuts off his head with her sword, ending his life, and the gods rejoice. Now, if we were to take this story literally, we'd have no choice but to revel in violence as a means to an end. Such a literalist and dogmatic worldview in the world's religions has created more suffering throughout history than we can imagine. Because all mythologies are filled with violence. But this story has many layers, and it's wise to see it as a metaphor. At the individual level, we each have a constant battle in our own heads. The harmful aspects of human nature are the asuras of our minds. Desire, anger, greed, pride, jealousy, and delusion. Like asuras, none of them are completely evil. In some instances, anger serves us, but only if we use it from a place of clarity, as Mahalakshmi does in the story. If it overwhelms us, it becomes self-destructive. Like Mahishasura, the destructive elements of our nature have the ability to change form. Jealousy can change into anger, anger into greed, and so on. There is also desire that heals us, the desire for wholeness and connection. In confusion, we often transform that desire into lust for fleeting gains, material wealth, power over others, and adoration. The Devi's spear is a symbol of insight piercing through illusion. Her sword separates knowledge from ignorance, the real from the unreal. The path of selfishness brings suffering, and the path of selflessness brings harmony. Looking out at the political universe, I see this story as a way out of our predicament. The creation of the goddess comes from combining the strengths of the gods. Alone we have limited abilities, but together we can create something greater. In this story of goddess mythology, the powers the male gods harness all come from the goddess. When they use them as fragmented powers, each god is limited by his own disposition. But once the powers are connected to their source, a true resilience is created. It isn't hard to see that we have been too reliant on the masculine powers for most of human history, suppressing the feminine aspects of our nature along with women themselves. 
Without a balance of male and female energies, cultures and societies become violent and chaotic. When we walk through the forest, we see trees standing strong and tall, and might think that they are the source of their own strength. But beneath our feet, there is a web of mycelium that connects them all. It transforms the soil, water, and even insects into nutrients that the trees use to grow strong and tall. More importantly, where one tree is struggling, the mycelial network will carry nutrients from other trees to support the weaker tree. None of this depends on the species of tree. The entire forest exists as an ecosystem that supports all of its inhabitants. Now, each of us has talents that are unique. What we lack, another one of us has in abundance. If we try to hoard our gifts, mistakenly identifying them as our own possessions, then we all suffer. But when we learn to share them, everyone benefits. What we lack is not a negative aspect of our personality. When we find the courage to reveal our fears and weaknesses, we may find that others share their wisdom with us to help us become stronger. And we can encourage others to become more open so that we can share our strengths with them. I don't have a specific answer for seeing us through these times. Just as each of us has a limited perception of reality, we each carry a small part of the answer. And if we devalue it or keep it to ourselves, that will be one piece missing from the solution. Let us now consider the Sanskrit word bija. Bija translates to seed, and it is used as a metaphor for the origin or cause of things. Most of us are familiar with the mantra, If you practice yoga, you might be aware that the Om is what is known as a bija mantra. It contains the essence of ultimate reality, which in our case is the true nature of the goddess. Chanting Om brings us into vibration with that nature, which is beyond our ability to describe with words. But if we chant with openness and in earnest, we can sense that reality in our hearts. The metaphor of seed is useful in many traditions, both religious and literary. What is the sound of your soul? If you could communicate your deepest truths to the world, what would they look like or sound like? If you could plant a seed in our collective consciousness, what would it be? What would grow? We often present the arguments for our beliefs with statistics and presumptions. Stories, music, and other forms of art are far more powerful, though. A bowl of homemade soup can have more power to unite you with those you disagree with than any argument you could make. And the seeds of truth are within us all, just like the power of the gods that created Mahalakshmi in our story. How can you distill that truth into its essence and share it in a way that it will grow in someone else's heart? That is the meditation that I leave you with as we return to our conversation with Manorma. You know, I also am in a unique position, I think, in the West because 
I'm a Westerner. So my teacher, I always say he was an Easterner and he was deeply Eastern and he brought the East to the West. And I was not going to be an Eastern girl who brought the the East to the West. I was a Western girl at the time, now woman, who is able to translate. But I also know the areas in the West that are confusing for people and the areas that are really of deep interest. I just have a sense of that. In this synthesis of these elements, uh, what started to happen was I started to realize, oh, this will be confusing for them. This will be, oh, this is not confusing. This is they need to make sure they understand this. And with years and years of teaching so many students, what happened was the Sanskrit studies method started to evolve. The basic principles, the way to approach the language, the languages itself. I mean, it's nobody, I didn't make the Sanskrit language. No one did. It was a revealed language. But what I am able to have brought to the subject is a way to approach it. And that's the Sanskrit studies method. It's a way to approach the language so that you you are successful in the learning of it so that you can learn these deep principles of yogic wisdom that get revealed through the verses, through the Sanskrit mantras, through the grammar, and through the philosophy. So when you say it's a revealed language, how does that happen? Were, were we monkeys swinging from the trees and then... No. <laughs> Although, yes, but no, not in this context. It's a very key point you learn in Sanskrit that it is not made. What is made can be unmade. But what is revealed, it's like mathematics. Nobody made math. But certain sages, certain wise adepts at math, the mathematicians of old, they were able to look and find different codes in the world as they see it and and absorb so deeply within it that suddenly different equations, different proofs were presented and then resolved, presented and then resolved, or maybe they themselves presented them, but it was revealed to them. So the language was revealed. Sanskrit is said to have been revealed by the rishis. The rishi means the seers of light. They absorbed in a meditative state and from that depth of connectivity with spiritual light evolved a language. It evolved out of five distinct points on the palate. We call those the five mouth positions. And from there, so many other configurations that formed into sounds and grammar and meaning. When we hear Sanskrit spoken correctly, it sounds the same as it did thousands of years ago. Is that the yes. idea? Yes. Actually, that is the truth. In some languages, we don't, like Latin, we don't know exactly as it's, how it sounds. Um, but with Sanskrit, what's amazing, we have ideas about it with Latin, but with Sanskrit, there are endless books. There's endless books where they describe um, how, how much air you push towards what point on the palate, how much vibration in the vocal cords. Uh, where do you direct the tongue? W- what's happening with the upper palate? So there's all this um, attention and um, uh, focus on where you put what part of the mouth or what part of the throat. That gives you like a manual for maintaining the sound because the sound for the rishis was extremely important. The correct pronunciation was very important. What is the role of mantra in your practice and how important is it to pronounce the sounds 
correctly. Mantra is integral to my own practice. There's, I don't even know where mantra is separate and I'm separate at this point. I feel like a living mantra, <laughs> literally. The sound in mantra is just a reflection of light as it moves through the body and lifts the aspirant or the seeker towards something higher. And that has been the focus and the aim of my own life. And that's how I, I live it. Um, the pronunciation is important. It's, it's very important, but it must not be made to be too important at the beginning. So in the very beginning, the important thing is to show up, to sit down, to, to actually open the book or to listen to the guide or the teacher and to, to have a feeling for it. You know, if somebody says to you, um, Hey Shiva Shambo, hey Shiva Shambo. And you don't know what you're saying, but you don't need to know what you're saying to feel connected to that. So you just go, hey Shiva Shambo, hey Shiva Shambo. And you let yourself be carried a little bit by it. So that's that's a wonderful beginning step. As time goes on and you want to go more deeply into the subject and the practice, then you want to come into greater alignment. And there's a difference between Jayanti Mangala Kali Badra Kali Kapalini. You see, that doesn't have the same effect as Jayanti Mangala Kali Badra Kali Kapalini Durga Shiva Kshamadhatri Swaha Swadhana Mostute. And if you say the mantra correctly, you align your whole body, your consciousness, your palate, which becomes the body that allows the prana to flow, that supports the flow of that. And you get to have the experience that the mantra is aiming at. So that's one of the key reasons that you want to pronounce properly because you want to have the experience. That's amazing. Could you just sing the rest of the interview? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) You might recognize from the sirens in the previous clip, Manorma and I were in Central Park pre-pandemic. I want to close this episode with a clip from our Zoom interview after the... Kumbhaka. My idea for this episode was to represent the present by switching between interviews before and after the alleged kumbhaka. So many presents have transpired since either interview. So many breaths. So many kumbhakas. And I expected the creation of this episode to happen more quickly. But I have learned patience and that everything has its own time. The following conversation was during the first wave of pandemic, when New York City was still a hot spot, and the presidential election was still far enough away that it wasn't at the top of our concerns. By the time you hear this podcast, the election will be upon us and the future will still be as uncertain as ever. Every time before the one we are in seems more innocent, because we had less knowledge of how things would unfold. So cherish your innocence as you listen, and try not to be tense in your present. <laughs> Yama will come for us all soon enough. For now, now. here is Menorma sharing her experience of New York City 
in May of 2020 and dropping some extra pearls of wisdom for the ages. How are you holding up in these unusual times? Uh, Physically, I'm feeling okay and uh, walking a lot more than usual. I live in New York City, and so New York City, of course, being this hot spot of the world, has a certain kind of energy about it. But it's also coincided with the beginnings of spring in New York, and spring is one of the most glorious seasons here. So it's been just beautiful, even as I I turn my head because the curtains are billowing in and, uh, you know, the light is streaming in. So not that everything is, uh, you know, daisies and blue skies, but... The weather is quite beautiful. And I was saying to someone, you know, it's so strange with this difficulty going on in the world. And yet the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing in the trees, and it's been uh, weather time that's been so supportive to a sense of inner ease. And so many people that I've spoken with, Bashupa, have mentioned how they're kind of happy to have a time where they don't have to keep moving so fast Um, So that's also been interesting. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, emotionally, I've been well, Uh, I've certainly been affected by it. And there have certainly been moments where I've gone, huh, wow, this is like, you know, a big, a big moment in time. But then, for me, what happens at junctures like this, at this stage in my growth and development is that I just move closer to teachings. It's given the earth a break. It's to some extent, I think, and it's uh, given, like you said, people an opportunity to reflect on what uh, is important, and the animals have an opportunity to frolic a little bit more, you know, undisturbed. I think it's a very interesting time to be uh, embodied and to be alive and to be engaging yoga. You know, I know that I'm not making light of the fact that there are real difficulties and that people are suffering and people are passing and there's financial suffering and there's emotional trauma and all that. I'm not making light of that. That's serious. And those things need exploration and support. But I am saying that it is an interesting time as a practitioner of yoga to get directly challenged, to have all of your practices, uh, see where your chops are and to be able to be challenged and then have the universe literally challenge you and those, you know, to the effect of, well, where are you at? and Where do you want to move towards and what will support you? And where is your difficulty? All of that's right on the table. And I think it's a great time to be alive and embodied in this time with your practice. I think it's a, it's a challenging time, but the challenges that we face in our lives are the spaces where we grow the most. Swaha. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Manorma, for sharing your wisdom. Thank you to our listeners for sticking around. Manorma can be found on her website, sanskritstudies.org, where she offers the Sanskrit Studies Method, a process that guides you through the remarkable journey of Sanskrit and shows you how to utilize the depth of Sanskrit in your yogic practice and life. There you can also find her Luminous Soul Method, 
which centers around understanding nine pillars. Each pillar holds a key to expanding yogic wisdom in your daily life. Find Manorma on Instagram at Manorma9, M A N O R A M A number nine. On Facebook and Twitter at Sanskrit Studies. To find out more about anything we talked about in this episode, check out WarriorOnePodcast.com. Subscribe to the Warrior One Podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you find podcasts. The Warrior One Podcast is a production of the Warrior One Collective, helping visionaries, healers, people who are doing good things in the world with websites, marketing, branding, content creation. Thank you all so much. Episode 3 of Kumbaka is coming with Reginald Hubbard, political activist and yogi extraordinaire. The music that you heard in this episode was written, recorded, played, and edited mainly by me with a little help from Garage Band Drum Loops from the Kali Mantra in one part. And speaking of mantra, if you stick around for just one more second. Thank you so much for having me, Pashpa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, wait, wait. Can you chant one more? Oh, one more. What would you one like more, to chant? Uh, how about Gayatri Mantra? Oh,